0: This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com galaxy and entering the promo code GALAXY. Wired.com presents
1: The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy.
0: And here is your host, David Barr-Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 175 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is David Mitchell, whose best-selling 2004 novel Cloud Atlas was adapted by the Wachowskis into a feature film starring Tom Hanks and Holly Berry. All of Mitchell's novels are set in the same universe, with characters from one book appearing in or being referenced in the others. And those books include Ghostwritten, Number Nine Dream, Black Swan Green, and The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoot. Mitchell's most recent books are The Bone Clocks, about a secret war between two factions of immortal occultists, and Slade House, a decade-spanning haunted house novel. And today's show is brought to you by Casper. If you need a new mattress, just pop on over to casper.com galaxy and order today. You won't have to visit a showroom or haggle over prices, and the mattress will be shipped to you in a box that's the size of a mini-fridge. Then all you have to do is open up the box and watch as the mattress expands to its full size. One of our biggest fans, Zach Chapman in Austin, Texas, ordered a Casper mattress after hearing about it on the show. Zach writes, It's a great mattress. I have a dog that likes to walk on the bed at night, and that used to wake me up with my old mattress. I don't feel him or the cat hopping around on the bed at night anymore, and my wife doesn't wake up when I come in after she's fallen asleep. The flyer it came with warns that the beds can take two weeks to get used to if you're transitioning from a spring mattress, and at first I felt like the bed was a little stiff, but five minutes into the first night I was already used to it. I did a bit of research first. The ratings are outstanding. Personally, I'd highly recommend it, especially considering how much comparable mattresses cost and the fact that I'm getting $50 off by helping out a podcast that I like. So big thanks to Zach Chapman for ordering the mattress and giving us that report. And yeah, it does really help us out when people buy stuff from our sponsors. And it's entirely possible that Zach single-handedly convinced Casper to buy another ad with us just by buying that one mattress. So who says one person can't make a difference? Anyway, it's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $9.50 for a king-size one. The mattress will arrive in the mail, and you have 100 days to try it out. And if you decide not to keep it, Casper will pick it up for free and give you a full refund. So if you're interested, just visit casper.com galaxy and enter the promo code galaxy. And you should also follow Zach Chapman on Twitter at ChappyZach, and listen to his short story Between Screens in Episode 406 of the Starship Sofa podcast. The story originally appeared in Writers of the Future, Volume 31, and I believe it's his first published story. So congratulations to Zach on his first short story sale, and on his first Casper mattress. All right, and so now here's our interview with David Mitchell. All right, so we're here with David Mitchell. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dave. Great to be here. Okay, so I mentioned that this is a show for fantasy and science fiction fans. So the first thing I want to talk about is just what were some of your favorite fantasy and science fiction books growing up?
1: Where to begin? Um, The Tolkien, of course, Uh, Ursula Le Guin, uh, the Earthsea books. Uh, I'll start with fantasy. Uh, Some some books you may not have heard of. They were uh, for British kids more at the time. I'm not sure if they made it over this time. the Atlantic uh, Celtic-flavoured fantasy quintet called The Dark is Rising by actually an American author called Susan Cooper. But uh, I've, I'm, I'm, let's say, I'm not sure how well... Known yeah,
0: no, are. they're actually fairly popular here, yeah. Oh, really? Okay,
1: great. Um, a British fantasy writer called Alan Garner. Does that ring any bells?
0: I don't think I know that one no.
1: He's interesting. Um, oh, uh, the uh, Stephen Donaldson books. I remember having those. The... Um, uh, Thomas, Thomas, Thomas,
0: Thomas Covenant.
1: Yes, that's the one. That's the one. Thank you. Uh, long time ago, though, uh, thirty years and longer. Um, so, but I, I, it was probably more science fiction that attracted me. So, uh, with him again, many eminent Americans: uh, Bradbury, Asimov, the Golden Age crew of, uh, of great American science fiction writers. Um, I subscribed to a comic called. 2000 AD that uh, that that fed uh, the appetites of many young British science fiction fans uh, back in the 70s and the 80s um Harry Harrison stainless steel rat have you heard of him
0: yeah yeah of course
1: yeah yeah uh they were pretty big in the UK as well but um uh, E.E. Doc Smith the Lensman books they probably haven't dated that well (laughs) uh, those books which um Uh, where the 2030s looked an awfully lot like the 1950s. Uh, but again, they were, they were good for my imaginative ex, um, education at the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and if people don't know those books, they were very influential on the Green Lantern comic book. So it's kind of a similar thing.
1: Right, right, right. Uh, one more The Riverworld books by Philip Jose Farmer. Uh, about an extraordinary planet where everybody who had ever lived, uh, including the famous, was resurrected uh, along the banks of this enormous, never-ending river on a vast planet, um, and their material needs were taken care of. But uh, uh, that was quite a pretty book. But I don't meet many people who know them.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, I haven't read the Riverworld books, but I, I know Philip Jose Farmer because he had a series called World of Tears that was very influential on Roger Zelazny's Amber series, which is my favorite fantasy series. So I kind of know of them, but I haven't actually read them. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, there's so much to read out there, isn't
0: there? <laughs> yeah. And so so how did you start reading the fantasy and science fiction? Was there somebody who, was there like a friend or a teacher or something who, who got you into it?
1: Not really. Uh, this was just back in the days when I think fewer books were published, bookshops were smaller. You knew what was on the shelves, and if you were a bookish kid, you just went there. And um, it was my idea of Saturday afternoon's entertainment to um, read the back jackets of all these books, one after the other. I just go through the whole shop pretty much, hmm. um, and I had an appetite for it. Um, we weren't that rich or anything when I was growing up, but my parents always found the money to buy me books because they thought it was good for me, and and I think they were absolutely correct. This is all pre-internet. This is all um, pre-book blogs, of course. Uh, So it was just a question of hit and miss. There were probably some like-minded kids at school as well, and and, and we would um, compare and contrast and pass books around a little bit. And, you know, you just slowly build up her knowledge on your way to geekhood, don't you?
0: (laughs) I mean, did you ever experience any pressure from uh, students or teachers not to read fantasy and science fiction?
1: Uh, No. no. Um, Maybe fantasy became a little bit uncool around 15, 16, 17 when um, you are, when it is more politic for young males to be seen to be into sports and the right music and, who knows, even girls than mm-hmm. it is to be into um, elves and orcs and dwarves and dragons. Uh Maybe only then uh, there was some peer group pressure, but I don't think it lasted that long, and uh I don't think it was that intense. And from teachers, I did not go to the kind of schools where teachers uh, cared very much what you read or even if you read.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, so you... any... I'm. I'm sorry. Uh, did uh, Did you ever receive uh, any of that kind of pressuring yourself?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I like a lot of I think American kids. I don't know if it's different where you grew up, but there, there, were, you know, you got teased for being into computers and science fiction. And I did have a number of uh, English teachers who would tell you that science fiction wasn't real literature and you should read quote unquote real books. Um, but
1: and, uh... Did you ask them about 1984 or Brave New World or or, or The Master and Margarita or early Margaret Atwood or H.G. Wells? That's such a nonsensical viewpoint, isn't it? I mean, Charles Dickens is shot through with fantasy. In Bleak House, you've got a guy who dies of spontaneous internal combustion. You've got ghosts in The Christmas Carol. It's weird how once things have become sanctified on, on the great canon of English literature, people then forget conveniently that it's actually what we would now call genre.
0: Yeah, or even Shakespeare, which is full of Indeed. ghosts and witches. Indeed, and
1: yeah. yeah. fairies. You name it.
0: They did it. <laughs> well, I, I've always, I've never found that intellectual consistency was a big concern of people who were of this attitude. I mean, yeah, you, you would say, uh, yeah, what about 1984? And they would say, oh, that's not science fiction. And you're like, well, it's set in the future, and it's an imaginary world, and there's imaginary technology, and all this stuff. And they're like, no, no, that's not science fiction because it's good. Uh... Uh,
1: exactly, exactly. And I think with that we can rest our case. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Henry James, you know, the best ghost. I mean, sort of the best, most sustained, most perfect ghost novella uh, in literary history, um, with *The Turn of the Screw*. And one of the best ghost stories of of, of, of all time, with um, uh, the friends of friends. Uh, uh, this is this is fantastic stuff. But um, as you say, uh, that there's, there's no intellectual con- uh, consistency in uh, in these arguments. So so yes, let's consign those to the uh, uh bowels of the earth where they belong.
0: <laughs> well, and I mean the thing that really frustrates me is that. That when people actually read a, a fantasy or science fiction book, they tend to like it. Um, but they're also convinced that there's this gigantic body of science fiction books that they know, they just know they would hate them if they were to read them, but they've never actually read them.
1: Yes, yes, you do read that. Um, I think people have an allergy. Well, people judge books by the cover, uh, which is a shame. It's their loss. It's, it's not good for the kind of bookshop culture war. Um, it, it's 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 convenient to have a horror section. It's convenient to have a science fiction fantasy section. It's convenient to have a mainstream literary fiction section. But these should only be guides. They shouldn't be demarcated territories where one type of reader belongs and another type of reader does not belong. Uh, it's it, it, it's a bizarre act of self-mutilation to say that uh, I don't get on with science fiction and fantasy, therefore I'm never going to read any. Uh we've already agreed it's inconsistent, but it is, it's, it's also, um, it's also, ah, what a shame. Uh, all those great books that you're cutting yourself off from.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And I agree that it's very destructive, this kind of us versus them mentality, because since I ha- had been reading these fantasy and science fiction books from early childhood and loved them so much, when teachers told me they didn't like them, uh, it made me very hostile to the teachers. And so it's, it cut me off from reading the kind of books that they wanted me to read because I had this hostility to them. So even things like you mentioned, um, Ursula Gwynne's Wizard of Earthsea, I, I resisted reading that for the longest time because it was on the school reading list and I didn't want to read anything that was on the school reading list. Yeah, and so I missed yeah. out on this great novel at that time.
1: Yeah. It cuts both ways, doesn't it? I mean, um, in a sense, we're talking about snobbery and, um, inverted snobbery and they're both, they're both harmful. Anyway, I'm glad you got to a Wizard of Earthsea in the end. Isn't it fantastic? And the Tombs of Tuon and the Fathers Shore. Love those three.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I actually saw you said that it was reading Wizard of Earthsea that made you want to be a writer.
1: Uh, yeah, there's a lot in that. Um, on, on 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 the one hand, it, it's a pat story and an easy answer to, uh, to an impossible question. Uh, what made you want to write? I mean, yeah. Because I'm me is the real answer, but people are never, are never very happy with that. On the other hand, it isn't a fabricated answer. Uh sure. I, I I do have clear memories um from way back of finishing a Wizard of Verse on a on a rainy Saturday morning and 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 just having this incandescent urge inside me. Like a sort of like a magnesium um ribbon going pfft, uh that I badly wanted to do that as well, I wanted to make those worlds and and people those imaginary worlds and um send them on journeys and give them quests and and make other people feel what she had made me feel so so yeah, that's real, and also those books just get better they were they were good then, but they're, they're extraordinary now uh I, I revisit Earthsea about once a decade, and uh, I read myself when I'm there. Uh, my, my earlier selves, reading them as a boy of nine, as a teenager of 15, as a young man of 26 or something, as a writer of 35, and as a and who reread read them to write an, uh, an, <laughs> uh, uh, an introduction to the folio edition's um, uh, recent hardback reprint of, of Wizard of Earthsea, so it's kind of come
0: kind of the full circle. Uh, yeah, because I, I read the article you just wrote about Earthsea. I guess, was that adapted from your... the the, the- Yeah,
1: uh, that was actually the uh, the introduction. Uh, I had no idea that uh, the Guardian were interested in it, and we're going to uh, put it in the, in the readings section. But, um, yeah, that was a sort of homage to Ursula, uh, who I know very slightly, if that's not named something, um, hmm. but uh, to the author, Um and I accepted the commission on condition that she would read it herself and edit it and change anything she wanted to um, but in the uh, event she was happy with it and so that's uh, that is what was used but uh, The Guardian I think printed it
0: directly as I wrote it hmm. Did you get any responses on that from readers to, or Earthsea fans anything like that?
1: Uh in the comments section, uh, there's quite a lot, um, so, um, a few hundred comments, but uh, um, I hope it doesn't sound offish, but uh, I tend not to read the section of anything. Because, well, yeah, that's some probably
0: some, a wise um, policy,
1: yeah. Uh, you get some extremely wise and insightful people uh, putting um, considered um, responses there, but, but you get uh, responses which are somewhat
0: less than that. So. <laughs> 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 yeah. I guess one other thing I was just curious about, just reading the Bone Clocks in Slade House, there are references in there to Dungeons & Dragons, and at one point in the Bone Clocks, a character runs through a a comic book convention. I was just curious how involved you are in that sort of geek culture sort of stuff. Uh,
1: I I haven't been to any conventions. Um, uh, Not because I wouldn't go. I mean, they seem like enormous fun. It's just just I'm not really at the stage of my life uh, that that allows me the... uh, a free time away from my family, uh when I have to be away from so often. Anyway. Uh I did play Dungeons and Dragons as a kid. Uh a lot of us did actually. Um a lot of the writers I know did. We we sort of in the barn late at night after uh, at uh at literary festivals. Um sometimes the conversation will get around to it's sort of a huddle of us in the corner saying, So, so did you play Dungeons and Dragons though? And it's amazing how many say yes. So Gary G- uh, Gary is it The G- yeah, G- 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 yeah. Gygax?
0: Gygax. yeah.
1: The Gygax, I never known how to pronounce it. Now I do, thank you. <laughs> uh he has a lot to answer for. Um and there's probably a PhD thesis that someone uh, out there in the in the realm of possible PhD theses that someone could write somewhere on Gary Gygax's influence on in the 21st century novel because um, it would not be negligible.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you have any uh, memorable experiences from playing Dungeons & Dragons?
1: Um, within the world? Uh, within the world we're exploring? Or, or in the kitchens <laughs> and uh, living rooms of the friends where I was...
0: Uh, I guess uh, I, I, uh, I either would be... Yeah, I, I'd be curious <laughs> about
1: either. Um, yeah, one or two. Um, just the ingenuity and the way that some of the dungeons the scenarios could outwit you and trick you and the deliciousness of being outwitted and tricked so remember one where um there was a it it, it i have got no idea what the names are but uh, but an adventure began on a mountain top and there was a pool, just a clear pool, and nothing else, nothing else in the world. And you had to work out how to sort of get into the adventure. And the character threw a stone into the pool, and the dungeon master, my mate Charles, uh, if you listen to this, hi Charles, but uh, the dungeon master said, um, you see a splash. That was it. And we wasted more time looking around, for the way in again, and then Charles said, "Just try throwing another stone in." So we did, and, and he said, "You see a splash." And okay, mm, yeah, and nothing. Uh, and the third time, Charles said, "You see a splash." Then my friend Richard, who uh, was um, who who, <laughs> who was still friends with, and who was who, who is and was smarter than me, said, "Hang on, you see a splash. You don't hear a splash. You just see a splash." And that was the key. Uh, so it was an, an illusory pool of illusory water. Cause, cause you just saw it, you didn't hear it. Yeah, isn't
0: that yeah. cool? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so it, it and, and, and it's these sort of, it's these constellations of, oh, isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? In the generation of the world that, uh, that I still remember and think very fondly on. More well, generally, uh, outside the world, and on our level of reality, it was a collaborative art form. It's something you all made. Uh, it was non-competitive. It was based on cooperation, and you only won if you worked together. And and if there was a, a sort of generosity of spirit um, in not picking to pieces or finding faults with, or find, or wasting time on hunting for the inconsistencies within uh the whole enterprise and that is something that i don't feel you get on computer generated um multiplayer games computer generated is probably the wrong word for it. Um, but uh, uh the digital versions of the same you know while we, uh, we were speaking with each other we were laughing and interacting and making drinks and and being friends uh, and the games although we took it seriously um in a way it was simply the vehicle for the human interaction uh that made the whole thing so very enjoyable does
0: that make sense yeah no absolutely and it hadn't really occurred to me until you were just saying that but i, I wonder if slade house was inspired at all or like influenced at all by your time spent playing Dungeons and Dragons, because it's a similar idea of kind of getting sucked into this dangerous imaginative world and having to survive?
1: Yes, I think, um, I think it must have been. It hasn't really occurred to me either. But, um, but, yeah, there would be similarities. I mean, It would be quite easy to adopt Slade House, or to adapt Slade House uh, to that format. And I think the, the room by room, the puzzles, and the challenges, and the doors, and the the uh, fickle, mercurial nature of the danger
0: within the world. Well, why don't we just back up, and for people who haven't read Slade House, just say a little bit more about it and how you came up with it.
1: It is a story about apparent ghosts and their apparent uh, house, their abode. Um, Every nine years, they the twins, I'm talking about um Jonah and Nora Drea, they um make it happen that a guest in inverted Commons is invited to Slade House, which exists or, or is only ever accessed via uh, a small black iron door. The door's not normally there, but it is when the twins would like you to visit, and each of the guests Five of them in the book, they, um enter, uh, first at least in the book in 1979 and the last one, uh, in 2015, uh, they enter, uh, Slade House and, uh, do not necessarily come out again. So that is, uh, uh, the elevator pitch version of the story without any spoilers whatsoever. Um, and, sorry, what was part two of your question, Dave?
0: Uh, just how did you come up with it? Oh, yeah. what
1: uh, okay, but with it, it was, well, it goes way, way back to when I first was thinking about uh, The Bone Clocks, um, and that was going to be not six novellas set in the uh, sort of six adult stages of man um, over six decades. That was going to be 70 individual stories set throughout a 70-year lifespan. Um, and Which is one of those ideas, that sounds sort of Great on the launch pad, but when you are actually light the fuse, it blows up because, uh, uh, it, it's, um, you, we read short stories in a different way to, when you, to reading novels, and um, a novel made of short stories, at least the way I was trying to do it, um, soon proved to be unreadable. However, I didn't, uh, and, uh, which is why, uh, the bone clocks evolved away from that and, and, um, it took on a pretty different form. Um, however, before I found that, uh, out that it was unrightable in that form, I, uh, done some work on stories that, that looked like what, um, Slade House kind of morphed into, uh, just the idea of this house that's less a house than a kind of immortality machine in a bubble reality all of its own and with a mind of its own almost. And I couldn't put them into the bone blocks, it just didn't need it, and then the structure would have become disfigured. Uh, but I still had these ideas, so I put bone blocks, put that away, uh, and, and just had an idea for uh, a Twitter story. I, I, I just wanted the experience of writing some fiction on Twitter just to see if it would work or not. And the first story to hand was the, uh, and, and indeed an obvious candidate was uh the first section of Slade House, which back then was a standalone story called The Right Sort. I did that for Twitter, was pretty happy was happy enough with the results. Uh but it raised a lot of questions and um, wanted answers. And so um Slade House it's a short book but it's got sharp elbows and it barged its way to the front of the queue of books that are waiting to get written. And uh that's what I spent the next Ten, eleven
0: months doing right, and the book is just incredibly creepy to read. Oh, thank
1: you, Dave. Thank you. You sound like you really know your creepy fiction. So, for you to give it that endorsement, it's um, it's a big deal for me. You never know if you're being frightening or not. The same way you never really know if you're being funny or not. You're immune to your tricks and fear Really, really hard to do on the page. Really hard. So, I'm I'm really happy to hear you say that.
0: No, I do. You know, I, I read a lot of horror fiction, and and most of it I enjoy, but I don't find that scary. But this book I really found unsettling. Um, I thought it was really effective.
1: May I ask why? What was it unsettled? Uh, was it its entirety, or or was there some elements you found, or was it a combination of the elements?
0: I mean, it's it's hard to say without spoilers, but but basically, I, I was constantly. I, I, you really made me uh, hope that something good would happen to the characters. <laughs> you know, right, and, right. and it never, right. uh, and, it, and I think a lot of it too, too David is that it was short. And I think there's so much pressure in publishing today to have long novels and it's very hard to make a long book scary, but this was short enough pieces that it was able to, in- uh, sustain that intensity.
1: Thank you. I broke it down into five parts and they're about 50 pages ahead and, uh, you can manage it in 50 pages. Uh, variations as well so you can uh, mess around with readers expectations about what's going to happen next because we've been here before but aha, uh, you can make it not like it was before and uh, and it's, it's a way of having a cake and eating it as well you can uh, good ghost stories tend to be short but novels obviously need a couple of pages at least in order to be novel so I um, executed a diabolical plan to do both by, in a sense, repeating the same story five times, but making the story very different and putting them in in a chain. And as you would have noticed, again, without any spoilers, um, even though the people who you hoped good things would happen to do not necessarily have those good things happen to them, even though that is the case, they still form a kind of a chain that things about uh, the overall ending that you may have wished for. That's a very vague Gnostic kind of a paragraph I just said, but uh, but do you uh, understand me as
0: someone who read the book? Oh, yeah, yeah, for, for sure, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, I think another thing that makes this so effective is, is a similar thing that you have in Lovecraft, where he tells all these different stories, and it kind of builds up this entire world. And so there are references in each story to things in other stories. And in this, you have this whole, I mean, it feels real because it feels like there's this whole world behind it. And I just love the terms you have, um, psychosoterica, anchorites, horologists, orisons, the Ninevite candle. It feels very, it feels like a fully fleshed out world.
1: Oh, mate, right. I'm grinning like a Cheshire cat on the end of
0: the day, but thank you. I mean, could you talk about um, those, those terms? How did you come up with those terms? Did you just uh, dream them up or are they drawn, inspired by anything?
1: Uh, you go looking for them and you stay open for them when they walk in. Um, horologists, uh, my sister-in-law gave me a book about obscure words to do with different times of the day called the Horologicon. Uh, it was one of these sort of Christmas books that everybody reads, but you, you get given it for Christmas or give it to other people for Christmas, but oh, horology, this is a great word. Um. It's, um, homology is not about time, it's about the science of the measurement of time. And that just seems an appropriate, uh, name for who and what the, hom- the homologists are, uh, in the bone clocks, with some, as you say, uh, some overlap in Sladehouse. Uh, the Anchorites, I think it's something bitter, particularly religious, bitter religious overtones and anchorites again you might you you, they don't know uh young women who were walled up with their consent uh although consent can be a slippery fish as well but uh, allegedly with their consent into the walls of medieval churches uh they were alive they were kept alive they were fed their basic needs were met but they, they sort of anchored their churches um more firmly against the winds, the storms of, of of the buffetings of of sin of evil of the devil of the plague uh, of war, and they spent their lives in prayer um but um you know you just have to wonder how long how fulfilled those lives actually were uh always women as well, of course, never men of course um so uh an honest. It's a Shakespearean um word for like prayer. It appears in the Hamlet um in thy orison's o nymph, be all my sins, remembered, I think it's something like what uh um what Hamlet says to Ophelia. um i reboot the word in 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 another one of my novels, Cloud Atlas, where it's a kind of futuristic recording device which. Projects an image when it's on a replay mode, which is sort of like looking at a prayer, uh, like the ephemeral nature of it, in the same way that prayers are ephemeral. But it's too cool a word to concise hmm. that. So, uh, I also like the idea that words have different applications through time, and technology as well is particularly adept at adopting and co-opting, uh, much older words. Um, and that's like psychosterica. Um, this is in a sense um a lot of the reviewers both positive and negative uh talked about the bone clocks so as a fantasy novel I do end up kind of explaining the fantasy in terms of it being um just science that hasn't been discovered yet or um psychosoteric mental faculties that uh could actually be um acquired or learned or honed and possibly even empirically measured. Um, so in a way, I wanted this in-between zone between fantasy and science fiction. Um, it's esoteric, which puts us into fantasy, but it's also psychological. It's of the mind. Uh, it's to do with all those subjects, and all those words that begin with the word psycho. Uh, except it's like a killer, which is very different. Uh, So the word itself is sort of uh, a tug-of-war rope being pulled on one side by the fantasy zone and being pulled on the other side by the science fiction zone. And I like that tension between them.
0: Yeah, well, and you mentioned the critical reaction. Um, What sort of uh, responses to the Bone Clocks and Slate House, to the extent that you've gotten them yet, sort of stick out in your mind the most?
1: I I did reading all of them. <laughs> oh, all right. the one. Uh But um, I mean, I know which way. I, I, I asked my agent to tell me which way the wind is blowing. Uh, and it's odd. Uh, the bone clock's generally pretty good. Um, one or two um, hatchet jobs, but mostly from the British. Uh, one or two kind of freestyle reviews. But mostly good solid fours, four and a half three fives. um Slade House, however um I'm yet to be aware of of of, of an in, even an indifferent review uh towards it. I'm giving a hostage to fortune here. there'll probably be something appalling in the morning in in, in, uh, in a major news organ, but uh uh one of the majors who have reviewed it so far um it's as I know from my agents, my publicist, it's been really good, which is interesting. Uh, it, it's it's uh, uh, it's my slightest book in some ways, uh, but perhaps that's part of the appeal. I don't know. Maybe I go on to like normally.
0: <laughs> <laughs> How about just just from readers? I mean, do you, do you ever get like really out there things like people who think the anchorites and the horologists are after them or anything like that?
1: for with Slade House, um, I tweeted as Bombadil. Or rather I wrote Bombadil's, t- uh, the last 10 weeks worth of Bombadil's tweets from the 1st of September to last Saturday when he goes into the house. And I, um, you, I, you can put tweets onto a sort of a pre-launch platform to say when you want them going out at which time. So over those, 10 weeks, I've tweeted tweeted the last 70 days of Bombadil. I'm, I, I'm, that, that, that's more likely to mess with people's heads, and if anyone is suffering from schizophrenia, that kind of thing, when it's arriving in their phone by someone who's really apparently believing this stuff, as opposed to being in a book by David Mitchell. Uh, I think the tweets are likeliest to um, be mistaken by people with a tenuous grasp on on reality as reality.
0: How did that uh, idea come up to create that Twitter character and uh, have it be um, sort of outside the text? <laughs> uh,
1: my, um, by my reluctance to write the kind of uh, how I came to write this book article that I have to do, that, uh, that I've done for all of my other books. I'd done one about 14 months ago for the Bone Clocks, and I'm really grateful for the attention's there, and I don't means for this to sound as precious as it may sound, but uh I, I just couldn't really muster any enthusiasm whatsoever about cranking out another twelve hundred word article on how I came to write this novel. So I asked my publishers, well, instead of doing that, would you let me let me off that if I give you this, if I do these tweets? And so that was a major reason. Uh and and my publishers being the uh forward looking compassionate people and I said, Yeah, sure, go for it. Um and so I did and uh it was a it was a lot of fun. It's also um also just lets me use this technology, Twitter, um, as something more than just a sort of a notice board where I put up my bookshop appearances and and yeah, just do things. I've got no interest in tweeting about my life, but I, I I don't think it's that interesting and I value my privacy. Um so that's really all I was using my Twitter account for. But I do get excited about fiction, as you may have noticed already. And um, to use Twitter sort of sort of as, as, as a work of art, as an arena of character development, uh, that's interesting. I don't have to feign any interest about that.
0: So one thing I really wanted to ask you about is I interviewed Casio Ishiguro back in April. And he said that you were one of the authors who really made him feel empowered to add these fantasy and science fiction elements to his work.
1: Bless him, yes, yes, I did see that bless him um he he's he he's one of my favorite writers uh ever uh in any language um He's the first professional writer I ever met on my very first book tour across america uh last century <laughs> uh in Minneapolis I think we met um I would just say in return, he empowers me, uh, and, and I know I'm not the only person in my generation who thinks that, uh, the way he, um, his first two books were very Japanese, then he wrote a very English, but quintessentially English, but more English than the English, then he wrote a 1930s Germanic novel, sort of a 700 page modernist novel, is no way to put it, that's what it is. With Everything that The Remains of the Day wasn't, and him doing that empowered me after I'd got my hit with Cloud Atlas think, you know, what would Ishiguro do? Uh, hmm. Would he write another version of Cloud Atlas but kind of not as good, or would he go in the other direction and do something completely different, uh, which he did? Uh, and then, when the orphans great uh, great sections in that, uh, then you yeah, then science fiction uh never let me go. It's a science fiction novel, but i'm I'm already thinking about your teachers. who would say it's not science fiction yeah. I mean, it, it is it's an alternate universe and and it's a dystopian one. Um, but maybe this is the point. The book doesn't care what it is. The book doesn't care if it's science fiction. The book doesn't give a damn about genre. Uh, it just is what it is. And that's what I want to do. Uh, the Bone Clocks, I mean, uh, uh, the, 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 that was in the corner of my mind that, on, on the Bone Clocks. So I don't care what genre any of this is. This is what the book wants to be. Um, and then he did it again you know, uh, with the Bone Giant. It's got a dragon in it. Have you read that, May I Dave? Yeah, that's the book uh, I yes. interviewed him
0: about, yeah.
1: Ah, right, right, right. Um and um you know, um it it uh, because he's on the book uh because uh because he's of a certain age, because he's of his a generation uh full of writers who mostly are now still writing the same book essentially that they wrote when they were forty. Uh because he's one of the two, three, four, five reigning kings of greatest living British writer. And it's just this big, big, big brouhaha uh, in the press, uh, in our, admittedly, tiny corner of the place, <laughs> uh, that, that, that the book will occupies. Is this, how dare he? Has he lost his marbles? What do you he think he's doing? Uh, I just didn't get it. And, and, but this it, is what the book wants to be. Uh, and you can, you, you're perfectly entitled to not like the book because you don't think it works. You're allowed to not like the book because you don't get on with his style of writing. You don't like the book because of its uncertainty and strangeness. But don't not like it because it's got a dragon in it. Don't, don't, don't not like it for that reason. Please! Anything but that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, he has said the very nice things about me in the press, but um, he's, um uh I he's a friend now but uh and he's a sort of a mentor but but more than that he's he's an example of how to age and still be writing really worthwhile stuff into your seventh decade. There's lots of people who write great stuff in their thirties. Uh and then it tails off and it behoves you to think about how to avoid that failure and how to keep writing vital proving dividing work that never sits on its level and never falls into a cycle of diminishing returns. Am I making sense,
0: or am I going all over the place with this? Yeah, no, no, abs- absolutely, yeah. Um, and I want to ask, you know, speaking of the future, um, obviously, since this is a science fiction show, we like to think about the future a lot. And but there's just this this real um, pattern these days where stories set in the future tend to be really depressing. Um, and you've you've written about this too in your work. I'm just curious, what do you think is gonna happen? do you think we're heading into a depressing future or do you see hope for any kind of bright science fiction future?
1: Well, it's a future, so we do not know. Uh what we know is that there are a range of possible futures that uh our timeline can enter. Uh civilizationally. Uh, which isn't a word that never mind, um, we can be pretty sure we're heading for some kind of a hard landing. Um, our civilization is, a, is addicted to oil, um, and nothing really is coming close to... There's nothing really on the horizon that can power it, at least not on the near horizon. Solar power, wind power, these things are great for electricity, for sort of domestic usage, but we need oil to move ourselves around. We need oil to create enough food to feed seven billion and growing very quickly people. We need oil to bring container ships from China to bring the things that we need to satisfy the of what human be human needs have. Um the oil to fly. And um without it, how is any of this going to work? Um unless we get answers to that question really very soon, uh the hard landing will not only be hard, but maybe worse than hard. Then there's ecology, climate change, uh the safe point uh to keep um, um the average increase in global temperature to within the two degree limit, that's probably in the rear view mirror now and probably gone. We don't have the political systems to save us. Um, we are too bad at voting for politicians who will transform our societies to save our uh the life support system that Earth is. We're too bad at voting them in. And we are too good at voting in, uh, people who mock, uh, the former. Um this is very worrying. Uh, Antarctica is melting. Sea levels will rise. Most of the world's great centers of population are, are on the coast. Um Hurricane Katrina, I fear will, it's, it's just, a, and, and, uh mild early warning. Um and while all of what I've said is true, it's it should be an impetus for action. It should be a reason not to roll over, give up and think something guiltily, ah, yeah. Um yes, we screwed the world, we're all screwed, but um but it's not my problem. Uh and I can't do really anything about it anyway. Alright anyway, um yes do, do we Possibilities are real, but uh, that's all the more reason to, to become scientists and engineers who will devise technologies that don't yet exist to soften the hardness of the landing we are headed for and to become artists and voices and administrators. And a thousand and one other things that human beings can become. I'm on a
0: soapbox.
1: You, you put me on a soapbox, Dave. <laughs> is it good to come down? To, uh, the, there
0: isn't much oxygen up here. Well, no, here, I I can join you for a second because on, on the soapbox, because I mean, I think that, I mean, one of the things I think is so important about science fiction is that it gets people to think about the future. And I tend to think if more people are reading stories set in the future and thinking seriously about it, it might shift the conversation in a way you're talking about that would shift the political system to to actually act on some of these problems.
1: And Amen and hallelujah. There's plenty of room on my box for you. <laughs>
0: um, but I wanted to ask you, speaking of that, about this. You're, you're actually writing a novel that's not going to be read for 100 years. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a vote of confidence in the future. I can't be that convinced that we're headed for for the Planet of the Apes or for Mad Max if I was doing that, would I? Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's called the Future Ivy Project. Uh, Scottish artist Katie Patterson has... Instead of a project where she, whereby she's asking her, or her uh, appointed successor is asking a writer of the day, one per year, to write a work that will be put away in a library in Oslo and will not see the light of day until the year 2014 when it will be printed on books made from wood pulp of trees that were planted last year. So it's this uh, time vaulting art project. And um I was asked and I uh, considered and it was idealism that made me say yes. So a bit of idealism in the diet is very important. You don't need much, like vitamin C. You don't need much, but it's really crucial. Uh, it protects you from scurvy protects you from a uh, cynicism which is very easy and it looks very cool cynicism and you're really wrong. Uh and it's a dry teflon coated um role, posturing cool position but but it's also cowardly. Um so that's why I said yes.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the purpose is sort of like, I don't know if you know the Long Now Foundation, but it's just that if people are aware, just, just anything that's not going to happen for a century is just trying to get people to think on that time frame and just realize that's, that a century from now is just as real as the present.
1: Yeah, and that our present is only as good as it is because people a hundred years ago were thinking in the long term as well. Our, we're... Living off savings, put aside, environmental savings, social savings. um, Laws that mean that life is much better for the non-rich now than it would have been for great-great-grandparents. All these invisible, uh, multitudinous strivings that we are oblivious to that's why the world is what it is. Speaking to you from Pittsburgh, oh, beautiful, huge trees. And I know I'm in a, in, in a nice part, it's under museum and the university section, but they were planted by strangers, kind of for my benefit. They weren't very impressive in the lifetime of the people who planted them. They were just sort of mediocre, 18-year-old oak trees. But but now they're these beautiful, blazing, full-colored giants. And... Uh, and we need to do the same. We can't just spend that. We need to invest for 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 the people who come after us. Um We bloody well should anyway. Hmm. And we need to take care of their planet for them. We need to take to take care of their now for them. Yeah. The soapbox. <laughs> you.
0: Um, okay, so we're almost out of time, and I want to end things on a slightly lighter note. So I, I came across this thing that you said. You said, if you know anyone from Japan, just ask them about Hanako-san. Can you tell us about Hanako-san? Hanako-san.
1: Yeah, uh, Hanako-san is a ghost who lives in, I can't remember which, which toilet cubicle it is, but every school toilet is a row of cubicles. And Hanako-san, presumably the girl, but uh, for some reason, boys aren't always necessarily in immune to her murderous attention either. I think it's the last one but one and uh, if you use that cubicle after school or if you use the cubicle without um, basically saying a, a, a spell of protection uh, or, or, or offering her her due homage, then, uh, she will extract a murderous and bloody revenge. The terms of the deal vary from region to region, from generation to generation. Um but, um I have yet to meet a Japanese person who does not know about the toilet or Hanaki, uh, not Hanako-san, who, um it, 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 it it's a, uh, it's an urban myth, it's a, it's more than an urban myth, it's a piece of universal folklore that, uh, is, is, um into Japanese
0: popular culture. Well, it's it's funny, because when I was a kid, I used to go to the video store, and one of the boxes in the video store was this movie called Ghoulies 2, that featured the the ghoulies coming up out of the toilet, and I think that that disturbed me more than anything else I ever saw, and (laughs) I maintain to this day that my childhood would have been about twice as happy if I had never seen the cover (laughs) of Ghoulies 2. Uh,
1: That's even more entertaining for... British English, uh, because in British English, Google is, is a euphemism for testicles. So the idea of testicle coming up out of uh, the toilet is both comic as well as deeply disturbing.
0: <laughs> All right, see, that's, David, that's why I have to have you on this show, for those kind of <laughs> insights. Uh,
1: except um, instead sort of ending on a light note, I've ended on a, uh, on a somewhat smutty note, haven't I? <laughs> uh, well, that's good, too. Uh, shall we... Um, let's end with the martian have you seen the martian
0: oh i haven't i i read the book and i just interviewed Andy weir i haven't gotten a chance to see the movie yet oh
1: really did you you you, you interview andy weir
0: i interviewed andy weir yeah just a couple of episodes ago he's a fantastic
1: guy um if you've got his email would you just say he's fantastic and if he's ever heard of me i've got no idea but uh say i thought his book was great i mean i really enjoyed the film as well but uh uh, what an ingenious book! Just, just it, it just feels sort of effortless, doesn't it? It's it's it, uh, it's clever and, and and unexpected and brilliantly plotted and paced.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and it was self published originally. And yeah. I think what's so interesting about the self publishing revolution is a lot of times, I mean, a lot of published novels, you kind of get the sense that the author is going through the motions. That they wrote this book because this is what they this is their job. This is what they do. But some of these things, like *The Martian*, you get the feeling like this guy's whole life was leading up to writing this one book. You know, yeah, he's been yeah. studying this stuff since he was a kid, and this is the culmination of a lifelong passion. That's
1: maybe why uh, the protagonist is so convincing. So convincing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe so. Um, there's a lot of passion in the book. I mean, I'm um, uh, self-publishing. Not very much. That the standard is anywhere near that, yeah, uh, because, yeah, yeah. But, but it is good to remember that it happens sometimes. And uh, and and, and um, however, manky the haystack may be, sometimes you will find a needle of pure silver in there. Um, I have to go and iron a shirt, my friend. But um, I've got a lecture at. Carnegie in 15 minutes. But look, thank you. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Yeah, me too, me too. Thank you so much, David, for joining us on the I show.
1: Hope I, I hope our paths cross again and keep up the fantastic work at Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> All
0: right, thank you very much. See you, right? Bye. Okay, bye-bye. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to David Mitchell for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes including Cliff's Notes, who writes, I discovered this podcast several months ago. I drive trucks over the road. This podcast keeps me plugged into the sci-fi and fantasy I enjoy. I've heard interviews that brought new authors or shows to my attention. I wish there was some way I could tell the folks who put the plug in for Saturn Run a couple weeks ago. I bought the audiobook because I heard about the title through this podcast's ad. Hint, hint. I am giving Geek's Guide a bit of money via Patreon, and hope others do the same. David is doing good work and I hope he will continue to send excellent interviews to my earholes week after week. The longer he does this, and the more exposure he gets, the more he'll get the big names to talk to him. So, big thanks again to Cliff's Notes for that great review. And Cliff's Notes, I did forward your comments along to Penguin Random House, so they're aware that you bought Saturn Run after hearing their ad. So, big thank you for that as well. And, of course, a special thank you to Hans Decker, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. I'd also like to give a special thank you to my all-time favorite Parisian, Bruno Anquier, whose total PayPal contributions just passed $1,000. Knowing that there are super fans like Bruno out there was a huge factor in our decision to keep the show going this year. So if you've enjoyed the recent episodes of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, just know that it wouldn't have been possible without the support of hundreds of listeners who took the time to sign up via Patreon and PayPal. So big thanks again to all of you, we really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for today's show, Casper Mattress. Remember that if you do decide to order a mattress, you should visit casper.com galaxy and use the promo code GALAXY. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your host, visit DavidBarrCurtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly,
1: Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends.